I can enjoy it. In the spring of 93, I was in a bit of a fix. I came back to Montreal after five months sniffing around Toronto, but I hadn't gone out there with a plan. So I did some freelance theater crew work, I played bass in a messy little band called Dale Nolan and the Mountaineers, and I missed Montreal. Once back, I sublet a tiny room in my girlfriend's sister's Myland apartment and suffered winter with everyone else. Come spring, though, I started working nights as a cleaner at Canada's finest all-male hotel. And one day, as my girlfriend and I were looking for parking, we spotted Dan LeBlanc. Dan was a dark-souled Acadian from New Brunswick, yet another holder of a Concordia U fine arts degree. I met him as we worked our doomed stint at A&A Records in 1990. Well, soon after running into him, we met up and listened to some music, and that's when he played me the three-song demo by the band a friend of his was singing for. They were called Sofa. I listened to it. I'm sure my eyebrows raised. I probably nodded my head. I wasn't impressed that they had a demo tape. Well, I had gotten that far with my band, The Joyces, the year before, but they sure had a sound. It was dark. And the production was a bit muddy for my tastes. The lyrics were poetic, what I could hear, and his buddy sang in a lower range than most radio music I was hearing. Dan told me they were looking for a bassist. I wasn't interested. I figured whatever they had going on, they wouldn't want my lighter, poppier sensibility in there, so I said no thanks. Dan ignored this, of course, and gave his friend my number. So sometime in May, I got the call from Brad Todd. Surprisingly upbeat on the phone, relentlessly cheerful as he pitched this band of his to me, he went out of his way to find some common musical ground to lure me in. Did I know pavement? That's an influence. The tragically hip? Sure, there's a bit of that. Finally, I didn't have it in me to say no, and I agreed to meet them at a rehearsal space up on Beaubier, near Park. I arrived at the appointed time, went up the stairs of this little brick square of a building, wisely located in the middle of nothing, and waited on the ratty couch outside a room where a band was playing. It sounded muddy, so I figured I was in the right place. I pulled my bass out of my gig bag and tuned it, and listening to the band, I started to get nervous. It sounded like they already had a bass player in there. What the hell? 
I didn't know this was some kind of open audition. Going into a room with a preformed band is hard enough, but no, 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 no. An outright comparison, that, that was a terrible idea to me. But the song ended and I heard some talk and the door opened. Out came Brad to get me. As cheerful as he was on the phone, his sentences often topped with words like definitely and absolutely. He was dark-haired with pale skin and the red lips of a doll. A cousin of mine would later compare him to the actor Tim Roth, not unfairly. Anyway, he brought me into the little room, packed tight with the rented guitar and bass amps, PA system and drum kit, and introduced me to the other two. Keith Marchand was on drums. Shorter than the others, but strongly built, working the look of a 1950s garage mechanic. This belied his own literary and fine arts background. And on guitar was Ian Ilavsky, slender and taller than us all, with a dry voice befitting a young man who left Winnipeg to study philosophy at McGill, but quit that to work nights at Fairmount Bagel. In hindsight, at least on one level, I should have seen it right then. It made a lot of sense for me to throw my lot in with these guys. I found out soon enough they all had a witty sense of humor. We were the same age, educated and scraping by through a brutal recession in Canada's cheapest big city, hungry to make music. Oh, but wait, where was that bass player I heard? There was no other door and no one got past me. Well, it turns out that was just Ian's guitar style. I think I had grown up listening to a lot of 60s-influenced pop and rock, and maybe my ear equated the guitar with a lighter, janglier sound. Ian's playing was decidedly not jangly. It may have been the first step I would have to take to retune myself, if I could find a way to make music with this band. The expectation, I suppose, was to have me come in and play along with them to see if I could fit in, but after a couple of passes at a song, I said, you know what, I like what you're playing, and I think I can do something with it, but I don't want to spend all our time here with you teaching me one or two songs. Let me pop a tape into that deck and record you guys playing all of your stuff. I'll go home and come up with some lines, and we can see how that sounds in a few days. Luckily, they didn't seem put off by that. They could have been, and that's what we did. It wasn't that hard to play along with songs that had never had a bass line, so I was able to come up with some good ones, and as it turned out, Keith and I made a very good rhythm section. In my memory of those years, I think of Dino, Garner Firebird's drummer, as a Buddy Rich kind of player, very flashy when he wanted to be, nothing he couldn't play. But Keith was like Gene Krupa to me. Even though he came out of the hardcore scene, he knew some jazz, too, and excelled at playing swampy grooves and tribal pounding beats. This was stuff I had rarely had a chance to explore. The hard part, though, was learning the songs from the three-song demo. They had enlisted John Asensio to play bass on those tracks, and John was a fantastic player. The lines he played were funky and intricate, and it was all I could do to even come close. But I knew I would have to find my own way. Ian's playing was funkier in those earlier days. He would eventually develop a more angular style, playing with more distortion and reverb to great effect. No longer having to concentrate myself writing lyrics or singing at all, I was at least able to look for openings for the bass in this sound. And so we met each week, eventually moving to a semi-permanent rehearsal space in a basement on Mont Royal, getting the songs tighter. At last, a chance to play a gig arose, third on the bill with local bands Tinker and Stellar Dweller at the Jailhouse Rock Cafe a few blocks east of our space. 
It was a beautiful, hot night, July. We played our eight songs for a receptive, full house, nervous, but surprisingly tight. Ian broke a string, and I got lost trying to play a John Asensio line, in front of John Asensio, of course, but it was a good set. to announce that there was a new band on the scene and Tinker and Stellar Dweller, both pretty new themselves, were good enough to make a little room for us to do just that. We would play a few more shows over the summer and into the fall, but the amazing thing was how fast we were writing new songs. We were already talking about using any money we made from the door at these shows to cut an album later in the year. I was still struggling to understand how I could use my skills in this context. I hadn't articulated it yet. But I was looking for some kind of common musical language that would act as a key into the band, if it would continue to build. After rehearsal, we would occasionally drop by Ian's or Brad's and listen to music. I heard a lot of bands then I hadn't been exposed to yet, and some made an impact, some didn't. But it was one night at Ian's as I sat on the couch next to the stereo and someone put on Closer, the final album by Joy Division. Joy Division was a name I'd always heard, but never bothered to investigate. They started out in Manchester as pretty legit punk and found something of their own, releasing two albums before singer Ian Curtis killed himself in 1980. The remaining members moved on and found huge success as New Order. But in Closer, I heard something else. This was a band playing accessible music, but it was unrelentingly dark. Curtis sang in a low register, and his lyrics were poetic, what I could hear. The drums were at times tribal, often regimental, a lot of sixteenth notes on the hi-hats, but not yet the polished machine-like sound New Order would later popularize. The guitars were often angular, rarely funky. This was definitely music made by pasty white boys in northern England. Ah, but the bass. Peter Hook who as a bassist on the big New Order hits I never much considered, was making a lot of sense to me. He drove the songs with the bass lines he played and often played chords on the bass. He would play a little melody on the bottom G string, all the while letting the D string above it drone on underneath. That was a technique I had stumbled on years earlier as a bass player with no one to play with, no guitar or keyboards to accompany me, but needing more than the thudding plunk-plunk of my bass to create a real song. I had heard it now and then in U2's music, the tragically hip, but the equation was simple. The Sofa guys liked this Joy Division stuff, and so did I. I had cassettes full of noodly ideas, a lot of brooding, gothic lines that I had never been able to do anything with. I said right there, Oh, if you like this... 
I have some ideas to bring in. Now I was excited. Pretty Much, Episode 65, No Wonder, written and read by Scott Clarkson, music by Sofa and Garner Firebird. from uh, the Montreal group Sofa here on Underground Sounds where it is now 9.14 and we're back with the guys. So tell Montreal all about Sofa. Wow. The origins of Sofa. I'll do this one. <laughs> well, uh, I took a, a course last year at Concordia that uh, Brad happened to be teaching. In turn, we just became bold pals and he said, <laughs> want to play in a band? And I was introduced to a couple of these fellows. And I said, yeah, I, boy, I know a, a fantastic guitarist, even though I've only heard him play on acoustic. And uh, <laughs> that turned out to be uh, Ian's uh, just jumping in. And uh, Scott Clarkson came along uh, a couple months later, in fact. We found him in a shopping mall. He right. was actually at the... Someone had left him in a basket, in fact, <laughs> next to the shopping mall. Was there a note in it? You know, there wasn't. There was a bomb, so we decided to take Scott instead. Should have so. taken the bomb. <laughs> 